0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, the Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tau Foundation.
1: Recently, I received a communication from a woman named Katie Tolarski. She. Told me a story about the office refrigerator where she works, which is where I work. She said somebody's lunch had been sitting in the refrigerator getting stinky. Because of that, the night cleaning crew threw out everybody's food, including some perfectly good lasagna I had in a nice Pyrex thing. Katie called me on her cell phone from a parking lot outside a Taco Bell. Here's Katie. <laughs> Okay, I, I couldn't understand that, but I was pretty sure that she said Greg Hill. Was Greg the guy with the stinky lunch? I had to know. Episode 1. What kind of guy leaves his lunch sitting around for... Okay, stop. Uh, excuse me? You can't turn everything into a serial investigation.
0: You've gotten way too into that show. First of all, it wasn't my stinky lunch. We're friends. You should just accept on faith that I didn't do it. I resent being turned into a person of interest.
1: Could I believe? Greg, I really wanted to. I did. And what I heard over and over from Greg's friends was that, you know, the Greg that they knew, a fastidious, considerate man, couldn't be the stinky lunch guy. But there was one person who had a different version— a story about Greg that was so evil and disgusting that if it were true I, I might as well just pack up and... Are you
0: doing cereal again?
1: What? <laughs> no, it's... I'm just tuning my crappy piano.
0: That better be all it is.
1: See, did it sound like he was threatening me? This is... I, I, I just don't know. I mean... Right? It's not me, is it? Next week, more about Greg, a possible weirdo. Meanwhile, today on the show, we focus on the podcast that fascinated so many people. And now he'll talk to you about cereal for 99 cents a minute, Colin McEnroe.
2: It's The Nose, but we decided to do a special, a very special episode of The Nose, uh, and that is because of cereal. And because I've been wanting to do something for a long time. As this podcast has unfolded, as its success eclipsed its previous success, which eclipsed its previous success, which eclipsed all other podcast successes, five million downloads uh, from iTunes in record time, and just a national conversation going on, parodies on Funny or Die, a, a tweet about serial from the official Sesame Street account, which when you think about it, is probably the first time that Sesame Street has gotten involved in an actual murder, uh, New Yorker cartoons. I mean, it really has, has become part of a cultural conversation, part of a, um, a dialogue about storytelling. And I feel I sound like Sarah Koenig when I say. All this. It's hard not to. So let me just introduce the guests instead. What I did was I asked among all the people we ever had on the nose who was listening to Serial. Well, Teresa Kramer, I already knew, was obsessed. Uh, and she an, was an early Serial adopter. And uh, and she's obsessed. Uh, she's also uh, one of the founders of The Cut, uh, an online magazine about the rapidly aging young uh, adults of Connecticut. Uh, with us also, uh, Hartford Courant columnist, uh, lawyer, uh, and friend, Kevin Rennie. Uh, only an occasional guest on the nose, but I found out, Kevin was really into cereal. You so. haven't told me how you knew that either. I have my ways. I have my ways. Uh, I got a phone call from <laughs> Rabia Chaudhry. Rabia Chaudhry was almost on today's show. This is actually true. She lost her voice. Rabia Chaudhry is the lawyer who triggered Sarah Koenig's interest in the murder uh, of Haman Lee and the conviction uh, of uh, Anand Saeed. Uh, and he, she was going to be on the show today. By phone, and she lost her voice today. So we hope to reconnect with her at some other point. Irene Papoulis, she's kind of a little bit of the outlier here. Uh, she managed to get herself ready to do this once uh, the, the gauntlet was thrown was thrown down. Right? You kind of binged it, right? I definitely binged it, and uh, yeah, I was interested in it first as a sort of cultural phenomenon. But I once I started,
3: I could not couldn't stop. So
2: yeah. So we want to talk about it on all the levels you know, uh, as a cultural phenomenon but maybe first and foremost simply as a story that we all listened to and had I think uh, probably our own very basic reactions to. So the final episode dropped yesterday. I will say that we are going to talk about the details of this case. My position is you can't spoil serial. It really just is kind of a, a, a journey. It's a ride that you go on. And it stops in a few places, but there really isn't an exact final destination that we're going to wreck for you. So if you're worried about that, I don't know. Other people might tell you different, but I really wouldn't be worried about that. But so uh, as the probably the most obsessed person here, uh, Teresa Kramer, we're, or I'm going to begin with you. So now that the, the rock slide is over and it has reached its angle of repose, do you feel as though you've been told a complete story that has a beginning and an end and, and some kind of message that you understand?
4: I guess I'd say that I feel like I've been told as complete a story as is possible. There are lots of questions I have, you know, regarding say Jay and Jen and what kind of shenanigans those two are up to right, that we're, will we're never really be answered. We're getting in the weeds yeah. already. <laughs> but so so a friend of mine posted that she wanted closure. And I think she actually will get closure. It's just that the um, sort of justice system moves too slowly for the show. So once the Innocence Project got involved, I felt like that there would eventually be an answer. It just unfortunately wasn't in time for the end of the show. But I think most – I don't know. Maybe not most people. I guess we'll take, a, we'll take a little survey of our guests here. But they felt like just knowing what Sarah, Sarah Koenig f- thought was enough.
2: Maybe I need to back up and quickly thumbnail this because if you're totally in the dark, I mean I'm not going to be able to explain who Jay and John are to you. But uh, (laughs) let me just quickly anyway give you kind of a sense of things. So in 1999 – Police uh, arrested Anand Syed uh, for the uh, murder uh, of his former girlfriend, Heyman Lee. This all happened uh, in, in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, or the area, the vicinity of Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, she was strangled. Uh, her body was not found for three weeks. Uh, he be- became a suspect, and he, after two different trials, uh, was finally convicted. He's serving a life sentence, life plus 30 years, uh, in state prison in Maryland right now.
3: They were in high school. They were in high school. Yeah. They were high
2: school students. Yeah, this is very much a story of teenagers. It is, depending on who you believe and who you listen to, maybe also the story of teenagers from from immigrant backgrounds, specific kinds of immigrant backgrounds. Sarah Koenig, a producer with This American Life, got interested in this after an approach by Rabia Choudhury who basically argued that uh, that Anand Sayed had been wrongly convicted for this crime. He shouldn't be in prison. Uh, there were so many things wrong with the case. And thus, this story unfolded over 12 episodes on a podcast that became quite addictive. So Kevin Rennie, as the lawyer among us too, is that one of the reasons you're interested in this? No, you're- I'm interested because I thought it was
0: tremendous storytelling mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't stop listening. And uh, I, for the listeners that uh, – you just heard that there was – that the Innocence Project got involved at some point in the – midway into the 12 episodes and when – Last week there was no revelation. I thought we're in for a soft landing this <laughs> week as to what what's going to happen to Adnan. And um and I and I think that uh, you know we all understand that these things are not resolved very quickly. And most murders when there's a conviction, it's usually pretty clear what happened. And uh, this is one of those more unusual ones where it's not that clear or it's not that clear what happened to us listeners 15 years later apparently, to a jury, it was clear.
2: Um, there are a million ways in which that, of course, is – that whole issue has been compromised. There's a lot of questions about whether whether the defendant received effective assistance mm-hmm. from his lawyer who was having a lot of health and personal problems at the time. A lot of questions about – some questions about whether the prosecution behaved entirely uh, ethically and some of the moves that it made. But you know, before we even got into any of those, I mean you said, said something, something interesting in one of the emails that we exchanged, uh, which was that um, – you had concluded you that – or you had a feeling anyway that uh, Adnan was not guilty. But you wondered how much you'd been manipulated by uh, Sarah Koenig. And we should say there's a star of this podcast and it's not the the, the imprisoned Adnan Saeed. It's not Haman Lee. It's, not, it's Sarah Koenig. This is very much – a story about a woman journalist putting the pieces together in a certain way and kind of showing her work as she goes. You know so much about her state of mind and what she had for lunch today and, and everything else. And so you're sort of wondering about the kind of mind meld that you achieved with Sarah Koenig.
3: Yeah, and it wasn't quite a I mean, I definitely identified with her. I feel like I'm in the same um demographic as she is, you know, sort of the educated white person, liberal, you know, who who feels like she wants to get to the bottom of this and she's and she's reluctant to really take a stand because she wants to be fair to all concerned. Um and so I identified with her for that, but at the same time it made me uneasy because I felt like maybe I was maybe we were just I was uneasy by the, at the idea of taking that for me and for people like me, this was all the many, many NPR listeners, et cetera. It was entertainment as opposed to reality. And so I found that fascinating, but I also found it disturbing.
2: It was entertainment and people were entertained by it. But people were doing a lot of other things by it. I mean, in the world of Reddit. You know, I mean, there was just a, this massive amount of crowdsourcing. I mean, there was a story that, that Sarah Koenig was t- telling, but on Reddit and other sites, there were people basically reinvestigating her work, following their own leads. I mean, one thing about this was that if you wanted to fill the time, Teresa, in between the weekly episodes, there were a lot of places you could go to slake your obsessive thirst.
4: Yes, uh, my personal favorite was the Slate podcast about the podcast. i did I don't understand reddit. i I feel like you've <laughs> you've expressed that same problem. Yes. Reddit confuses me and I can't I can't read it. Um, but Slate had also done their extra spoily spoiler edition during the week where there was no serial on Thanksgiving. and they sort of brought in all those Reddit ideas for those of us who can't be bothered to read them.
3: Wait, what is Reddit? Could, could we it's just It's the front it's the page of the internet. Yeah, it's very it's confusing. Fun. But why is it so confusing? It's because
2: confusing. It, it's a massive, chaotic crowdsourcing product, mm-hmm. uh, project where, it, and it has its kind of own language and structure and grammar. And if you don't do Reddit, do you? Like, you no, I don't. I <laughs> <group> don't. But <laughs> I did. I did read my first exposure to Reddit mm-hmm. in
0: any sustained way <laughs> was through yes, yes. this. And I thought, God, who are all these people hollering on me <laughs> about?
4: It's like a giant murder. comment thread, yes. basically, yes. Okay. only yeah. it's huge and there's no way to navigate it unless you spend a lot of time figuring it out. And
0: but is, someone submitted a letter saying, oh, here's a letter that uh, that Hayes' brother, brother wrote. And I thought, mother? I wonder if that's really – I wonder if that really is a letter, but – you couldn't be sure. It, as it, in everything about
2: serious. <laughs> right. You couldn't, couldn't be, be sure. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, Reddit actually functioned in very serious ways as people brought in alternative theories of the mm-hmm. case and e- evidence not considered, and pretty frivolous ways, um, probably the most fr- uh, frivolous of these. Uh, would be that uh, somebody suggested that there should be... There's an internet meme uh, connected to cereal uh, that was a shrimp sale at the crab crib, <laughs> which is this completely random thing that I, what Sarah and one of her producers are talking about. I think one of her producers...
3: They were in the car, yeah. so I feel yeah. like she probably saw... I imagine she, she saw it, a doesn't? sign as they were driving by yeah. <laughs> and mentioned it, and it got on the tape, but then they didn't follow up.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks to Reddit, you can now buy a number of T-shirts uh, that say shrimp sale at the crab uh, crib. Or, and Do you there's, think
4: the crab crib is now just inundated with people looking for shrimp? Probably. <laughs> I guess. There's
2: even one that says crab crib, but it's done in this very specific typography of the cereal logo. And
4: it
3: it seems like a typical uh, experience on the on the internet in the sense that I felt that whatever reaction I had while I was listening, and I listened to it alone, you know, sort of like at night, just kind of listening to one episode after the other. And I, I I started to form some ideas and questions and everything. But I wasn't really listening to the podcast about the podcast for most of the time. But then when I started to, I realized that every thought that I had had about the thing had been had by a lot of people and dissected and taken way farther And explored. And so that gives you this feeling of, oh, my gosh, where am I? I can't hold on to all the pieces. I want to hold on to all the pieces, but I can't.
4: I actually found that listening to the podcast about the podcast, I had more questions for the people discussing the podcast than I actually had about the podcast because I wanted to be like, well, did you consider this? Right,
3: right, right.
2: (laughs) You know, um, Kevin... I wonder whether you think this falls in. I mean, look, true crime is an old genre, and it's been done very, very well by people like Truman Capote and in *Cold Blood*. We've certainly been through the, the *Fatal Vision*, Joe McGinnis, Jeffrey McDonald thing, which turned into a Janet Janet Malcolm thing, which turned into an Errol Morris thing. Uh, in documentaries, you know, things like the Memphis Three, the, the so-called *Paradise Lost* series about the three wrongly convicted uh, young Memphis men. Is this part? in a very solid way of that tradition or is this attractive in a way that has relatively little to do with that tradition
0: oh i i you know i think a murky murder is is uh, always going to be uh, grist for this this kind of program and it and and the the thing about this is it's very unusual because we haven't had the means to have a, a an extended 12 part series on this that you can kind of listen on your own also, it's you know, essentially radio. It's, it's, it's only audio. And so you're much more inclined to create your own universe as to for where these people are from, what they look like. Um, I only looked at a map a couple of weeks ago. I kind of stayed away from the map because I thought I wanted to have an idea of you know, where's the Best Buy compared to you know, <laughs> the park and how come doesn't have, someone doesn't have a picture somewhere of that telephone?
3: Well, did you, did you find, uh, Kevin, that the fact that you were a lawyer – Change the the whole way that you listen.
0: It, it, I think it did. I think you, you can't help that when you when you're a lawyer. That's what they tell you in law school. They change your brain and the way you think. And <laughs> I kept thinking if, as I was listening to, I thought Sarah has to be careful because you can't accuse people of murder. And when I was reading these you know, some of the other commentary, I thought you just can't say these things about <laughs> people. And and the other part of it is, it's not the important the important aspect of this is not who killed. Hey, it's did Adnan kill Hay? And it's it's you know it's not the, the you know for the point of a court, for instance, at the, now is you don't have to come up with an alternative theory of of her murder. It, the question is, did he do it beyond a reasonable doubt? And I think that listeners became so enthused that that finding the truth became a, became more important than 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 the the ultimate t- uh, issue before this podcast, which is. What about Adnan?
2: Well, although I think that raises a really astonishing – I didn't mean to interrupt you, but an astonishing moment in the final podcast. We've also got a call from Karen that I want to get to, but um, in the final podcast where – and this, once again, I don't think this is a spoiler or anything like that, but the Innocence Project, which is a very well-known sort of collective work by um, law professors and lawyers, usually based at law schools, but it's involved people like Barry and pretty well-known people like that. Uh, One of them gets very interested uh, in this case and near the end proposes kind of an alternative of theory that effectively does suggest that maybe else somebody else did it, and so Sarah Koenig is saying to this lawyer uh, from the Innocence Project, this very very experienced lawyer, yeah, but what about all these little other little facts here? And and that that lawyer says, big picture, Sarah. Um, and in fact, sort of advancing, and I was a little bit shocked by that because I, Kevin, I'm with you. It's kind of like, <laughs> like that's that's not a good answer. Like I can I can construct a narrative where somebody else did this, and and my response to the details that implicate uh, some of the principles in this in the story that we've known so far is forget about that big picture.
3: Yeah, and she also uses her 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 gut feel, you know. And there there was that one. Wonderful conversation that I that I think was repeated a lot in the podcast about it, where she's talking to Adnan, and he, she said, you know, I just feel like you're a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I don't care that you... In effect, he said, I don't care that you think I'm a nice guy. I want you to find something that's going gonna to mm-hmm. exonerate me here, you know? And I thought that was... It was interesting because we thought he was a nice guy, too. And so that's part of the sort of, you know, liberal viewer paying attention and thinking, oh, he's such a nice guy. Yeah, great. But that doesn't really mean anything. Well, you know I went, what I thought? When I was
0: thinking, I, you know, I, I thought, I don't really know if you're a nice guy. And I thought, you can't figure out where you were that day. You can't, you can't help by telling it, telling, mm-hmm. figuring it, reconstructing mm-hmm. that day, the most important day of your life, it turns out.
2: Although I did at times, at times feel as though Adnan would be a better lawyer than Sarah Koenig would be. Uh, <laughs> he seems to understand what the case is about. Here's Karen. Not that Sarah doesn't. She's, uh, we all worship at the Church of Sarah. But um, <laughs> here's Karen from Hartford. Hi, Karen.
1: I'm an an attorney, and my only comment, um, or two, I guess, would be that, number one, a lot of the things that you hear on the show would never, ever be admissible in front of a jury. Mm -hmm. So there's that to consider, and, you know, for good reason sometimes. And then I just, as you were saying it, um, the big picture thing, when the Innocence Project had said that they were going to request more DNA testing because of this serial killer, I sort of throw that out because... Jay knew where the car was. Having said that, I think when she said big picture, I think she is using the serial killer theory as a vehicle to get more DNA testing. Not necessarily because they think the DNA testing will reveal that a serial killer is involved, but maybe that it will reveal J's DNA or some other kind of... Right,
2: right. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's certainly one of the little details that came up. We're going to have to take a break in just a few minutes. I just want to come back, um, Teresa, to something that Irene said, because, you know, talk about something that's inadmissible in court. Obviously, that whole question of, well, he seems like a nice guy. He seems Mm -hmm. like such a nice guy uh, is a a completely irrelevant thing, except that this isn't a courtroom. And one of the really fundamental ways we do evaluate questions like this, if we're not on a jury, if we're not being held to standards of fact, is... Do I think this person could have done that? Mm -hmm. Um, And that that is a thread that runs through this entire story. All of his friends say certain things. Other people say certain things. Sarah Koenig is constantly saying certain, uh, certain things to that effect. Did any of that matter to you?
4: that didn't matter that he was a nice guy or, or that
2: people said he was a nice guy or or whatever assessment you made we hear a lot I mean, we hear a lot of tape uh, of Adnan himself talking on, on this prison phone
4: I mean every time someone goes out and kills someone everybody is you know oh he was so quiet and such a nice guy i didn't even i didn't even think about that but th- that's sort of the neighbor right like th- the thing that the thing that made made me there were things he said that really rang true with me that made me think He did not do it, which were things like, you know, it would be easier for my parents to know that I was in here because I did it than that I was in here unfairly, which makes sense to me. And at the end, he didn't really seem all that interested in, you know, in Sarah. He he just wasn't pushing her one way or the other. It seemed like he was like, this is it. This is my story. I'm not going to lie to you about it.
3: I thought that was really actually really Mm -hmm. interesting. And that was also something that that distinguished him from me as the listener in the sense that one thing I wrote down that he said is if someone believes me or not, I have no control over Mm it. And I thought he had a certain resignation. But of course he did. Given his experience, Mm -hmm. you know, assuming he's innocent, which I believe he is, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's been in jail for 15 years. Mm -hmm. He has this sense of, you know, whereas someone like me or us would say, wait a minute. This is an injustice. We have to stand up. Somebody has to take care of it because we're used to having that happen to us in our experience. If there's something wrong, we have these we have ways of making things be okay. But he doesn't. Right. After fifteen years, so him to say, if someone believes me or not, I have no control over it. You know, first you could say when I first heard that, I thought, oh, well, that means he did it. Because, you know, then I thought, no, he's 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 resigned. He has to be. He has no Mm -hmm. choice.
2: We have to take a little break here Uh, as we go out. You'll hear a little bit from the uh, now infamous Funny or Die parody of Sarah Koenig's. Stephanie, is that correct? What do you want? I do a podcast. It was supposed to be for four people. Do you think if I thought this was going to be anything, I would have MailChimp sponsor us? What do you want to know? Do you want to know who did it? Fine, fine. I have a confession for
1: you. It was me. It was Sarah Koenig, okay? I did it. I guess I did it for that sweet, sweet MailChimp money, okay? I'm out of here. And by the way,
4: Crab Crab is having a big sale on shrimp, so get your ass down.
2: We're talking about serial. Uh, we, we've been listening to it for 12 episodes. A, a lot of you have too. We thought it was time to, to talk a little bit about uh, the things that that came out of it to us. And so, Kevin, I want to sort of um, piggyback on something that Irene said here um, right going into the break. And that is – and I think we also I, – I, I hope I'm restating you correctly or at least part of what you were saying seemed to be about the fact that we kind of expect that the facts will all get be, be collected about something, and and if there are glaring problems with a uh, conviction or something like that, somebody will take care of that. Somebody will do something about it. You know, you listen to a story where there seem to be a lot of things that are really wrong, and something, and it, the world will be made right somehow. Because I mean, we sort of innately believe in justice, even those of us who think of ourselves as cynical. Yeah. But I want to pause over part of that, which is you know, you and I and Irene are all old enough to remember the Warren Commission. To me, the Warren Commission was sort of a, a beginning of an American realization that collecting more information about something wasn't the same thing as solving it, that you could in fact do the most exhaustive analysis of something that you really wanted to know about what could be more important than the death of a president and in fact maybe even succeed in confusing yourselves or confusing the people that you needed to communicate with more than in fact achieving clarity. I wonder about this. This is a year-long, exhaustive look at it, and in some ways, people are more confused. And,
0: and this week, there was more information. You know, the the guy who heard it, who worked with a, uh, who worked with Jay, mm. the mysterious Jay in the video store, comes forward because he's heard about the podcast, and he said, "Oh yeah, I was working with him, and he thought he he was very nervous that someone was going to take him down, and there was a van across the street. Oh, he was very very nervous." Anything. This is 15 years later and it's not – may not be a critical piece of information but it's an, it's an interesting and useful piece of information that comes from a, a dispassionate observer and 15 years later, there it is. And of course the reason we're, we're learning about this is that these massive resources have been deployed uh, essentially on behalf of Adnan was who, who in prison. Very, very few people ever have the who – are, who are convicted and are languishing in prison for the, for the rest of their life have the benefit of those resources being used for them. There are very few Michael Skakels.
2: <laughs> that is true. There are very few.
0: I mean it just <laughs> – probably most murderers have a public defender with, also with limited resources. Certainly nothing like this. When the, when, uh, the podcast was able to send someone to New York – to hunt down a um, uh, an old AT and T phone contract from 1999. I mean, for a lawyer, to, for a defendant to be able to afford that—that's someone who's who's has some money, and most murder defendants don't.
2: Right. I mean, you see this exhaustive forensic analysis at the end uh, where in fact yes this obscure phone record which only exists in some Supreme Court filing in the state of New York that it's uh, it's an appendix record or something like that but but they track it down they track down the schematics for you know the best buy that was built sometime in the 1990s so they can try to figure out whether there could have been a pay phone there and they're just this kind of effort can't possibly be marshaled uh, towards a um, uh, an average defendant just because we keep mentioning Jay and I I do want to sort of try to include people who are listening who, who haven't heard the podcast and wonder whether they want to or not. I, I have to, just have to really say, so Jay is a young man. He is the key to the case against Adnan. If there's no Jay, there's no case. He is a friend slash acquaintance uh, of Adnan, uh, the man who wound up being convicted for this crime. And he, A, knew the location of the victim's car. This is the most important. This is the only fact that he knows, really, that is kind of relevant to the case. He was able to leave, lead the police to where the victim's car was. And he, he told them a story of basically having been an accomplice after the fact, he, that he was um, – he assisted uh, Adnan in burying uh, Haman Lee uh, in this wooded location where she was uh, eventually found and that, um, that he knew the story uh, of Adnan's motives, which had to do with being basically replaced in her uh, romantic life by, by somebody else uh, and some – perhaps even some kind of loss of honor that he experienced that was maybe even unique to his culture. Anyway, he, he's the whole – case. He's, I mean one of the reasons this feels like a very weak case is he's an unreliable witness. He's a guy – there are some holes in his story, uh, things that don't really work. He changed his story a few times. So it's hard to tell this story without talking about Jay and it's hard to come up with an alternative theory of this story that doesn't convict Adnan and doesn't involve Jay. I mean – and so that's why we keep talking about Jay anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this story is different from the way crime stories are ordinarily presented to us, right? I mean usually if you're going to read In Cold Blood, well, I mean Truman Capote kind of knows everything that happened and, and here's how it goes. And, and the same goes for most crime stories and even, you know, the network, network television has like – they traffic in a lot of this stuff. But it's all kind of wrapped up neatly. This – Teresa was a little bit more like Watergate, you know. I mean, with Watergate, you were kind of watching it unfold. You were watching the reporting going on by Woodward and Bernstein and other journalists. And, and their reporting triggered other revelations and other people might call them uh, or call another journalist working on this. Uh, and And so in a way – it's not that I've never seen this kind of journalism before, but I've never I, – I typically associate it with a story unfolding in real time. I don't think I've ever seen it about a story that happened 15 years ago, but now the reporting's unfolding in real time.
4: Well, one of the things I kept thinking about this when uh, – there was a lot of critis- criticism about this being entertainment, right? So, And I kept thinking, well, yeah, but if he is not guilty at the end of this, there is potential for – That wrong to be righted. And this just sort of has it not only is it a different kind of journalism, but it has the potential to have an actual impact. Like this young man could get the attention that he needed to get out of jail. One of the questions I had when they brought in the Innocence Project, actually, even before that was why Robbie had never Reached out to them. And maybe she had and maybe they were just they had a thousand cases and they couldn't get to it or whatever. And then this happened to it got on the podcast. And now all of a sudden it's getting this attention. And so it just has the way it has the potential to affect the outcome in a way journalism does not normally.
2: And and, and I mean, I also I wanted to come back to that first thing I asked you about because in some ways I don't feel like we dealt with it adequately. I feel as though usually when this is happening, when we're when we're watching something about a crime, you know, there's either this sort of anonymous documentary voice about it or this kind of authoritarian journalist figure who has some name like Stone Phillips or something. And he's basically Mm -hmm. telling you this is what happened. I found out what happened. I'm Bill Curtis. I went there. This is the story. This has been so different. I mean, Sarah Koenig, who I think – I feel like she's the Lieutenant Columbo of 2014 (laughs) in the sense that she kind of seems a little bit more fumbling than I think she really is. But that's her style, right? It's how she gets people to talk to her who might be a little bit more guarded with a different kind of person. And I think also for someone like you – Um, a rebellious, iconoclastic college professor. You know, you're probably not interested in a real top-down narrative from somebody like Stone Phillips. But this idea that Sarah Koenig is only maybe one step ahead of you, that she's bringing you along, she's including you in her thought process, you and Sarah are really kind of working on this together in a fairly democratic relationship between author and consumer of text. I'm wondering if that has to do with your feeling like, at the end of it, you wonder how sucked in you were by the specific storytelling style that Sarah Koenig has.
3: Yeah, very interesting question. I mean, yes. So you know, my first answer is yes. Though at the same time, I wanted actually um, taking off from what Teresa just said, I wanted her to be more a partisan. You know, I, I was I was you know, like so one another thing I wrote down, the last thing I wrote, I wrote down that she said because they were talking about racism and she was really resisting. It seems like there was a lot of racism going on in the in the conviction of him. He was Pakistani, and they had this... Anyway, she said, the notion that, cops, that the cops were driven by racism, that I, that I find hard to believe, and I don't believe it. But I don't want to write off what Shamim, his mother, was saying about racism a little later. Maybe anti-Muslimness did creep in inadvertently or advertently. You know, it's so wishy-washy that... Um, you know, yes, I was with her in her process, and I liked the fact that she was sharing her doubts. I thought that was really interesting that we could hear her doubts. So in that sense, she's different from a, a lawyer or, a, you know, or or a, or even a reporter. And so I, I did like that side of her, but ultimately, I didn't like it.
2: All right. Um, we've got some calls coming in here. One of them has a question that I think Kevin can speak to pretty easily. This is Phil from Tallinn. Hi, Phil. Hi. Uh, so this, yeah, like you said, this question is for... Kevin, uh, and I'm kind of looking for the point of view of an attorney. But, you know, they never really talk very much in the podcast about why Adnan did not take the stand in either one of the trials. So my question is, how often would a, would a, a defendant in a murder trial not take the stand? Is that common? All right. I think and, it's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's it's a
0: good, good that's good that. a that, you yeah. know, I, I wondered the same thing. It is common that a, a defendant does not take the stand in a, in a murder trial because, and this is this is sort of one of the things that puts me on the on the knife edge about mm-hmm. Adnan, Adnan, is which is most murder defendants have pretty long criminal records, and it is very very unusual for someone's first crime to be a murder, mm-hmm. and it's particularly unusual for a seventeen year old in under these circumstances. And that's one of those sort of statistical. You bring your life experience into this thing. You think, yeah, but there's nothing here to indicate that this 17 year old student, good student by all all descriptions, a dutiful son, uh, was had a had a good relationship with uh, with. Hey, even after they broke up, it just it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But you're it. It also doesn't make sense as to why he didn't. Take the witness stand, and I would only conject—I'm I- going to conjecture on this—and is, I bet those prosecutors were at a point in their careers where they hated Christine Gutierrez absolutely. <laughs> that was his defense hated counsel, her, yeah. his counsel, and you hear in the recordings, which is you know this is why it's so important to have have um, our trials uh, cameras the in the state courtroom or for yeah, cameras yeah. in the courtroom because you hear this and you you have a much better sense of the context of it. She was. Ferocious and and she took was on annoying is and what abrasive. She was. Yeah. <laughs> well, she was, but you know that that's that's her
2: job.
4: I would expect There's, her to be abrasive. She, but she was like you just didn't want to listen to her. Her well, voice you, she you, was horrible. You don't,
2: you don't put your client on the stand if you don't think he's going to be a very good witness for himself. Right. There could be a lot of different reasons for that. that and he's a kid. He's a kid. He's a
0: kid, and he's up against experienced lawyers. And frankly, he couldn't remember anything, anything about the day that she disappeared, and that would have become obvious to the jurors, and some of those jurors would undoubtedly have thought, how do you not remember that day?
2: You know what I'm trying to remember now, Kevin? I'll look it up when the show's over, is whether Hubie Santos put uh, Karen Aparo on the stand uh, during her trial. It's, it's kind of you know similar age right. group a little bit. This is a, a murder case here in Connecticut where a young woman was basically her, – in her trial, she was accused of essentially – prompting her boyfriend to murder her mother, uh, that, that she was sort of the, the, um, the hub of a conspiracy that involved uh, the murder of her mother. And it was a very, very heavily covered trial by the uh-huh. press. Uh, and despite the fact that I devoured the coverage and, and participated in it to a certain degree, I can't remember anymore whether he put her on the stand or not. But, you know, a young person as a witness, your, your ability to control them. Very, very hard. Very uh, hard. A young I- person as a witness
0: up against – I mean even a young person just getting up there and telling a story. But then having to face cross-examination, I, uh, the risk would, the mm. risk was, was tremendous.
4: One of the things I was thinking when we were talking about ability and how important it is is, you know, what – Sarah Koenig goes back and talks to some of the jurors and they say they just believe Jay. Like he seemed like a nice – like a OK kid from the neighborhood who probably knows his way around the streets but is basically a decent guy. And it seems like if they had been able to juxtapose Ednan to that and just maybe liked him a little more, they might have had a different outcome. Because it does say somewhere along the lines that it seemed like after the the mistrial – it was a mistrial, right? first, the one, was first, one, the first one was a mistrial. They polled the jury and then it seemed like they were leaning toward acquittal, but that the second trial just didn't go as well and mm-hmm. – Gutierrez was way more annoying, and, and things turned out differently. Yeah, Wolfie's typing, terrifying
2: mm-hmm. that likability is a factor. But it is in, in these cases. Let me grab one quick call from Sarah in New Haven. Hi, Sarah. Not that nope. Sarah, I don't think. Hi, Sarah. You're on the Hi, air. how are you?
1: So I am a serial-obsessed listener and also someone who frequents Reddit. And I find interesting that there are lots of things that come up on Reddit, facts about the case that Sarah Koenig never talked about. And I find it hard, um, you know, or do I count these things when I'm thinking about what's going on with, it, with the podcast? Do I, like, it seems like uh, it was brought up how Jay knew about the method of death before it was released by, by the police. Mm-hmm. I don't know, did he really? Or was it just something that Redditors decided? You know, things like the credit card charge that everyone on Reddit is talking about and Sarah yes. Canning never brings up. I find it hard as someone just sort of listening from the other side. Without any of the boxes of evidence in front of me to decide if those things should have any weight in my mind on the case,
2: I don't know how to react specifically to that, or I don't know if anybody has, but yeah, it well, be. you would
1: think
3: that that if it is credible, it would have gotten to her attention since it has so much publicity, mm-hmm. but or maybe is that my just optimistic? Oh, I think yeah. she
0: wanted. I, 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 you know, I think she wanted to find yeah. the means to to uh, exonerate Ednan. Mm-hmm. I mean, that. I that was the point really, at least at the beginning. But you right. can see how complicated a murder case like this is and how difficult it had to have been to have been, a, to have been on that jury.
2: Mm-hmm. It, it, one of the things that it does tell you and even the things that she's telling uh, you about – that Sarah's is saying right now about, about Reddit is you know, the more – evidence you amass, the more loose ends you create, right? I mean you, you don't, for every loose end that you tie up, uh, you start creating other loose ends and so it, it does seem as though and in an, an environment like Reddit there never has, oh I'm being told Karen Impero did testify in her own defense, <laughs> that was sort of my memory actually, but um, the um, so at least we know one thing And, was you know? she, right. and what was the outcome of she the was trial? A she was, a she quitter, was a yeah, uh-huh. yeah But it, I think, it, we, we, once again, we're this is sort of a country based on John Locke and the idea that we're sort of Capable of knowing things, capable of apprehending truths, and and I I do feel as though this is a nice example of how problematic that really is. Well,
4: I think so. She she talks about how the cops uh, sort of ignore the evidence that doesn't work to build their case, right? And she talks about how all fra- all facts are supposed to be friendly facts, and why why aren't they talking about these? but you can sort of see why the cops wouldn't because if he sometimes it's just like well that's just that's just information that doesn't have anything to do with this or or whatever and so um don't That's don't not it's that unusual. I mean, thing. once yeah.
2: police start to construct a path to victory, so to speak, they get less and less interested. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that we've seen that with lots of cases. I think we ought to take a break here. Uh, come back. We've got Irene Papoulis. We've got Kevin Rennie. We've got Teresa Kramer. Uh, we're talking about Serial. Uh, uh, we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about it. We might even, in the tradition of the news, give some endorsements. We might even be able to endorse things like connected to cereal. Serial.
1: They know
0: when I say I've been listening to cereal. I don't mean Rice Krispies. I mean the podcast. That's got me caught like a bass on a line that a rod cast. Good way to get your pod on. All the kids at Woodlawn. Hey, and Adnan, Jay, and Don, and Asian.
1: So was Greg the guy with the stinky lunch? You know, there's something called M-Brain Theory. In this universe, we process time linearly, forward. But outside of our space-time, from what would be a fourth-dimensional perspective, time wouldn't exist. And from that
0: vantage... That's not even from cereal. That's from True Detective.
1: One thing we do know, Greg is the kind of guy who sucks the joy out of life. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Maybe that's why he doesn't have time to eat a stinky lunch. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ira Glass. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff trying to get their mail back from the MailChimp, visit our website, wnpr.org. And now, back to Colin.
2: So, uh, we're talking about cereal. Uh, Kevin Rennie's here. So's Teresa Kramer. says so Irene Papoulis. Uh If there are things that you feel that we don't cover here adequately, please feel free to. Because this, this is a never ending rabbit hole. I mean, so email me at Collins, C O L I N at wnpr.org. I would be very, very happy to hear from you. You know, as we uh, head into the final segment here, one of the questions that I have is whether this is a repeatable phenomenon or whether it's a one-off. And, Kevin, I'm going to start with you because I mean, you and I both cling like remora to the body of a large news organization called The Hartford Current. But, you know, you sort of think that if, if you are a large news or, large news organization, maybe a little larger and less stressed out than The Hartford Current, looking at this and looking at the success of it, you might think, wow, I wonder if we're doing enough of that kind of thing, you know? I mean, there's clearly an appetite for it. I wonder if if there's a way we can do it. I mean, we'll hold for a second the question whether Sarah Koenig and her crew can do it again. You sort of wonder if there's a ripple effect here, whether it will change journalism at all. I think that uh, if he gets
0: out, if somehow he gets a new trial again he gets out, I think there will be a lot more of this. If he doesn't, then, prob- then probably not because it is, you know, I think, for instance, her second, whatever her second series is, it's going to be awfully hard to top this. And um, these cases, you know, we do – everyone should worry about innocent people sitting in prison and uh, – but these cases are hard to find. You know, there's one right going on in Connecticut right now before the Supreme Court. That was, the, the, the homicide took place 30 years ago mm-hmm. and um, the system moves very slowly and it's not easy to get someone a new trial. It's not easy to overturn a conviction.
2: But it doesn't even have to be exactly that sort of an innocent project, innocence project model, right? It could be something else. I mean, one case that continues to obsess me is the execution style death in Parkville in Hartford of Zeon Davidson and Kent McLaurin. That's a case that, as far as I could tell, was inadequately investigated by the police. Um, They never developed any suspects. At one point, the Justice Department got interested in it again. That kind of got dropped. I remember talking to the chief of police about it at one point live on the air on WTIC. And when I brought it up, he started like shaking his. Headed me like don't talk about this, and i 'm thinking, well, why would that be why can 't I talk well, about well you
0: know it's funny yeah. you say that because I've asked, I've asked about that case as well because that was around the same time as the Cheshire
2: very close yeah yes
0: and um, and i 've asked people about it, oh yeah, we know who it is we just can't you know, can 't do anything about it, we know who it is and and I thought you know it's just a sh- it bothers me that, mm-hmm. that no one, that, that those murders were never solved, and they were they were horrible, brutal murders uh, just like so many others are. And uh, perhaps we're on to something. I guess we're going to have to apply for a grant to Ira
2: Glass. Well, yeah. no, no This could be our, our big break, Kevin. Right. And, and Teresa, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll oh, ask yeah. you a different version of the same question. I mean, this thing grabbed you in a certain mm-hmm. way. And I think it grabbed you partly because the style of storytelling was a little bit more inviting and a little bit more inclusive. And I, I'm wondering, I mean— uh, you know, as you think about either listening to the next serial podcast, the next mm-hmm. season of serial, or anything else, what do you think ab- there is about this that if somebody wanted to reduplicate that success, they would want to try to do? Well,
4: I actually wrote about this for work as sort of in the context of long form journalism and a resurgence of long form journalism. And no one does this anymore. Right. Like most people, most, you know, everybody's just taking snippets of what someone else already reported and talking about it and just reposting it somewhere. And and this is this you just don't see this. Right. So it's it's original. It's told well. And it's told it's told in a way that, like, once you get interested, you can't stop. Right. You have to know what happens. It's not you want to get to the end. And so most people don't do that anymore. You, you, you people like, you know, Law and Order, where you can watch one episode and never watch another one again. And it doesn't matter, you know. But this is the complete opposite. This really pulls you in and says there will be an answer at the end. But you have to stick with us from the beginning to end to understand it.
2: But I think also people like the kind of the DIY part of this, too, mm-hmm. that they could also begin drawing their own timelines and turn into Carrie Matheson and start pasting stuff up on the wall and getting hammered <laughs> yeah. on, Pinot you know yeah, Noir was,
3: I was thinking about that, you know, that with Carrie Matheson, we know there is going to be an answer in a way that we t- or um, Olivia Pope, too. But I think it also has to have mystery and complexity mm-hmm. and texture and personalities, you know, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't have those, if it's sort of like one guy that knows the answer, and nobody else did, that's not going to work. You and know, it has to be, there have to be people you can talk to and people you can say, wait a minute, do I believe this one or do I believe that one? And so it has to have lots of personalities and mystery in addition to...
4: It would also be the, interesting to know if like, if Adnan had been unlikable, like if he got on the phone and he was a jerk and no one liked him, if anyone would have been interested in this, right? Because I I think about it and I think they describe him and I'm like, they could be describing my brother when he was, you know, my brother's 17 when Adnan was 17, they're described basically the same. But if he had just been like if he had been the outright if it had been Jay that was wrongly convicted and it was him sitting in prison with his eyebrow rings and his Dennis Rodman like whole shteze going on, you wonder, you know, would people have listened as much?
2: I as think it year? doesn't matter. I think what matters really? I, I think what matters is that Sarah Koenig is likable. I, I I'll go back to what I said earlier on. There was a star of this show. Okay. It wasn't him. It wasn't anybody else but Sarah Koenig. And the journey we went on with her mm. if you bought this, if you liked this, if 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 you stayed with it, you were essentially saying, "Okay, there's something about this way of telling a story.
0: A successful story, this sort of genre of storytelling, the detective is the star.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like true detective. Yeah, it's like it's like,
2: like, you know, it's like murder or or like or like Philip Marlowe. I mean, I just go back a little ways. Raymond Chandler would tell these stories and you're very much enjoying the prism. Through which uh, Philip Marlowe looks at things, and I think we we started to, to like Sarah. She had a sense of humor. She was very self disclosing. She would tell you that she was the drunken stone person who turned up at a party. Yeah, just she... you know, she was telling you a lot of things about herself. We only have about two minutes left. Does anybody ha- I mean, I've got some endorsements, but is it, did anybody else want to make an endorsement? Well, but,
3: well, the 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 serial related one, yes, is uh, the blog of Ravia If you haven't seen it, um, Ravia Choudhry's blog. Yeah, yeah, she
2: talked. Yeah, it's really good. All right, Kevin.
0: Well, I haven't. I I'm going to t- reveal something. I haven't checked Cafe Press yet for a, uh, a serial T-shirt, but I'm looking forward to it because I, I have gotten Ray Donovan once, which I, c- I, can't, I can't say enough about Ray Donovan. I think maybe Sarah should call on him.
2: Oh, right. Uh, yeah, Ray Donovan on Sh- uh, Showtime, a great story about an Irish-American semi-criminal. He'll
0: say to Jay, the bag or the bat, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right.
2: John Voight, by the way, giving the performance of, oh. of his life uh, oh. uh, on that. Uh, Teresa, what have you great. got?
4: Slate did a story about the the top 25 or top 50 podcast episodes of Mm. all time, Mm. and I thought it was really helpful in helping to fill the cereal-sized void that is now in my life.
2: All right. Yeah. I want to quickly endorse the wonderful Stephen Colbert sing-along last night uh, wow. at the end of his uh, so uh, his run. Uh, if you do want more of this kind of thing, I mean, I've mentioned most of this, but The Staircase, uh, which is uh, a very similar kind of story. It's told in documentary form by uh, Jean Vier de L'Estrade. It's a sort of a mini-series documentary. I'm sure you can get The Staircase on Netflix, uh, probably about as close to serial as you're going to come. Any of the versions of the story of the West Memphis Three, uh, the simple one is called West of Memphis, but the 3 pages Paradise Lost documentaries are good too. And yeah, you could read the Jeffrey MacDonald books. You start with Fatal Vision. You go to The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. You end with A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris. Thanks to everybody. We're out.
1: Next season on Serial, I travel to Westeros to investigate the poisoning death of the King of the Andals. No, that was Game of Thrones. I'm pretty sure it was Hodor. Was it Hodor?